Man in pretrial custody dies in a London prison. The University of Waterloo is ditching vending machines with facial recognition software. Conestoga College issued more than 30,000 international student visas last year, effectively creating a new city in a single year. The Phoenix payroll system is worse than ever. Chinese migrants are a growing number of migrants, and they're paying more than other migrants to try and reach the United States, and dozens dead in mosque attack in Burkina Faso. Good morning. It's Wednesday, February 28th. I'm Nora. Here are your headlines. We start this morning in London, where Brian Michael Myers has died while in the custody of the Elgin Middlesex Detention Centre. He had been hospitalized for pneumonia just two days earlier, but was sent to the segregation unit at the Exeter Road Jail. Myers was being held in pretrial custody, as in he's one of the overwhelming majority of people in Ontario prisons who have not actually been found guilty of committing a crime. Myers was charged in connection to stealing a U-Haul vehicle. I know the parallel with news from yesterday in Edmonton are kind of wild. So for having stolen a U-Haul vehicle, allegedly, he was charged with nine offenses, impaired driving, flight from police, failure to comply with a peace officer demand, dangerous driving and driving while prohibited. Now, the impaired driving charge is interesting because a trial would allow us to figure out if this guy was really in the right mind to be able to be considered guilty of actually stealing the vehicle. But it's wild to me that someone like this would be kept in prison for to to await their trial. His first court appearance was the day he was arrested and he was represented by a legal aid lawyer. In those six months, either he or his lawyers have been in court, quote, more than a dozen times, unquote, reports Dale Carruthers from the London Free Press. Most recently, he had been in court on February 14th. While Carruthers doesn't mention this, Global News reports that he was the 22nd person to die in the custody of the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center since 2009. Next to the University of Waterloo, CBC's Paula Duhacek is reporting that the university has decided to pull vending machines that were tracking the age and gender of people buying stuff from them. Students at the university revolted over the machines when someone posted on Reddit that they saw an error message saying the machine's facial recognition software wasn't working. And of course, the person took a photo of the notice, which, uh, wait, isn't facial recognition about collecting more than just gender and age information, that's collecting biometric information. Well, we'll learn a little bit more about this story. There were 29 machines on campus, and the university claims that it had no idea that these machines had facial recognition software, which seems kind of impossible. But I have worked with university administrators, and I can say that it's entirely plausible that they didn't know. They should have known, though. The machines were made by Invenda, a Swiss company. The company says that their machines use facial analysis, not facial recognition, though the photo of the error message from the student clearly says facial recognition. Duhacek doesn't remind readers of this and leaves the company's defense just on its own. The company claims that the facial recognition mode tells the machine when someone is standing in front of it, and so will show the screen with options in the vending machine rather than the screen with ads. Of course, there's 
other ways to do that. But anyway, the company also claimed that knowing the age and gender of the people buying their products is really important for them because it helps them to stock only popular products. Though, again, facial analysis or recognition is not going to tell you either the age or necessarily the gender of the person standing in front of it. And there's like way less invasive ways to stock a vending machine as we've managed to be doing for like, I don't even know, 50 years, 60 years. Duhat check quotes Sharon Polsky, who's the president of the Privacy and Access Council of Canada. And Sharon inexplicably says this, quote, no point putting products in the vending machine that aren't going to sell, take up space and just cost money to throw out when they're stale. From a business perspective, it absolutely makes sense, unquote, which is like a weird quote from someone who's at a privacy agency, as if there aren't like a million non-invasive ways to do this. Like, oh, I don't know, hire someone to just pay attention to what people are buying. My God. But then Polsky is quoted saying this, quote, it's terrific that people are noticing these affronts to our privacy and not just shrugging their shoulders and saying not a big deal, unquote, huh, which is like, great. Thanks, Polsky. That's a great. Yes, that's exactly right. People should be concerned about this. And it's wonderful that the students had such a quick victory on getting rid of these machines. Next, to an investigation that looked into which schools have accepted how many international students in Canada. And the complete outliers by a long shot are Ontario public colleges. Valérie Wallet and Mike Crawley have found that it's overwhelmingly Ontario public institutions, not private ones, that have been growing their international student enrollment. The most permits given out by any institution, and it was the most by far, was Conestoga College in Ontario at 30,395 permits given out in 2023 alone. That's an enormous number. That's the entire size of my university's undergraduate population and graduate population in a single year. When I was in school, there are only 45,300 students at Conestoga total. So, I mean, this is this is a complete scandal. Conestoga is in Kitchener, Ontario, where 242,000 people live. So, you know, it's not only an enormous number for the school itself, but it's also an enormous number with huge implications on the city of Kitchener and the region generally. And you know what? This actually doesn't surprise me. I met an equity studies prof from Conestoga recently, and her stories were devastating about how little the college actually cared about these students and how it was clear that they were running an exploitation ring. After Conestoga, the only private school in the top 30 on the list was next, and it's the BC-based University Canada West. They offered 13,913 study permits. Yeah, Conestoga is the biggest by more than double any other school in Canada. After that school is Fanshawe, Niagara, and Seneca, who all offered 11,000 permits each. And then the list goes on from there. Lambton, Centennial, Algoma, Sheridan, and Fleming are all on the list of the top 10. One estimate in the story says that the institutions are getting at least $20,000 per student, which, um, by the way, totals $600 million a year for Conestoga, which is, uh, frankly, an insane sum of money for a college. When I was at Toronto Metropolitan University's Board of Governors, our entire operating budget was just over half of that. 
Anyway, you can look at the rest of the investigation if you'd like. It goes into labor market statistics and trends and other programs that colleges run to attract international students. But it must be said, there is a direct line between the fact that Ontario College Student Unions were taken over and then depoliticized by administrators in the 1990s and the administrations doing this today. A straight and direct line. And if you think that immigration policy is so important for the federal government to manage in a way that responds to what Canadians want and Canadians see and that responds to the needs that Canadians have, how many Canadians want to bring family and friends from other countries, which is important in settlement and making sure people come to Canada and have supports and have friends and are able to thrive. All of that is taken away when the colleges are given carte blanche to do whatever they want solely for the purpose of finding money. It is shocking. It, this is this is really the biggest scandal in Canada, and it is absolutely disgusting how little adult conversation exists around this issue, instead of always turning into some xenophobic fest that's like driven by the conservatives. Next, the National Employee Payroll Software System Phoenix is in the news again, rising from the ashes from previous Phoenix stories. The Public Service Alliance of Canada's President Chris Allward marked the eighth anniversary of the implementation of the payroll system. And in that period of time, over eight years, a pile of 444,000 unsolved payroll problems have piled up. Problems can be anything from overpayments, underpayments, or mispayments, among other issues. The report from Anya Caradiglia at Global News cites the PSAC press release saying that the average time to deal with these issues is two years. Recall that this system was implemented in 2016 after work that was done by Stephen Harper's government. It was supposed to be a newfangled way to pay public sector workers and consolidate dozens of other pay systems. But Jennifer Carr from the Professional Institute of the Public Service of Canada asks whether or not now is finally time to overhaul the system entirely. Carr's union represents public sector workers who are also paid by Phoenix. And after eight years with more problems, she's probably right. Next to Colombia, where there is a large group of migrants who are trying to get to the United States and who are from China. The migrants are dressed to walk for long distances, but many are also wearing Crocs, holding small backpacks wrapped in plastic bags, something that Al Jazeera says doesn't exactly add up. The migrants have gathered in the town of Necocli, near the Panama border. Together, they cross the Darien Gap, the dense jungle that separates North and South America. Chinese migrants make up the largest group of migrants who are from outside the Americas and the fourth largest group outright. The Chinese migrants tend to have more money and can pay what Al Jazeera dubs VIP routes across the jungle. They have help from the Gulf Clan, which is Colombia's largest drug cartel. These migrants equal big business. Overall, it can cost tens of thousands of dollars to get into the United States, and they have to go via a country that allows a visa-free entry like Ecuador. Where cheaper routes through the Darien Gap might take a week, these migrants have been crossing the gap in just a few days on boats, hiking, and even on horseback. To go through this easier route costs more than double what it costs for to go the longer and more treacherous way. Al Jazeera talked with some migrants about why they've decided to make the journey. One man, Wu Xiaohua, said that since the pandemic, he's been struggling to afford to live. Another migrant, Huang, was working as a masseuse, but COVID lockdowns killed her employment. 
subsequent to the increased movement of Chinese migrants, arrests at the U.S. border have bounded for Chinese migrants. Ten times the number of Chinese migrants were arrested in 2023 than in 2022, and the number was more than double the entire previous decade. And finally, news has come out that on the same day that 15 people were killed at a Catholic church during mass in the north of Burkina Faso, an attack at a mosque also killed dozens of people in eastern Burkina Faso. It happened in Natia Boani during morning prayers and killed mostly men. Natia Boani is close to the border with Benin and Togo and is about 370 kilometers south of Esakane, where the attack on the church happened. Those are your headlines for Wednesday, February 28th. I'm Nora. You're listening to this podcast at sandynora.com on the Real News Network podcast feed and anywhere you get your podcasts. I hope you have a wonderful Wednesday and I'll talk to you tomorrow.